Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Aparuta de sangamatasa tawara ye sodawanta bamunjantu satang I wish to welcome you here on this lovely day. And this is uh, champagne. (laughs) Stretching the rules a bit. (laughs) It says elderflower. So the subject, the title of the talk is uh, Being at Peace in a World of Conflicts and so this probably interests everyone here in this room (laughs) because the world is, uh, if there's any way to describe the world, it's about conflicts and so (laughs) it's, uh, we, we have the hope that we'll solve all the conflicts and have peace and the idea of peace but recognize the the reality that we have to bear with in this uh, in this realm that we're living in which is like this you have a body you have to that uh, grows up gets old and dies gets sick gets sensitive in the changing environment different seasons as you can see it's autumn now and then winter and then there's uh, conflicts everywhere within one's mind and uh, externally. So this is the nature of the conditioned realm. <clears throat> and I think it's very important to, to really uh, admit this, recognize what we have to deal with as human <sighs> individuals. Because we, I mean, we think we oftentimes take things, take the conflicts into a personal way or, or always blame it on somebody else or a different political party or different group of people or different country. And so the, uh, if we begin to get perspective on actual realities of what it is to be a human being living on planet Earth, then we began to not expect peace and happiness and and resolution of conflicts uh, in any permanent, decisive way in this realm. Uh, and so the, the Buddha pointed to the way of looking inward rather than trying to resolve the endless uh, succession of conflicts that we experience both personally and nationally and whatever in any form uh, any uh, degree of pleasure, pain, and and hope, and disappointment, and despair. <clears throat> so, I found this very very helpful because my background is is one of, you know, being very idealistic about, you know, after the Second World War, we wanted peace. <laughs> You know, I remember, now we can have peace now that we've solved the problems in Germany and Japan. And then, of course, 
it was Russia, Soviet Union, <laughs> and now it's uh, Islamic terrorism and on and on like this. So we can see that this is just the nature of this realm is, is it's it's very nature's conflict because is conflicted because each one of us has our own karma to bear with. You know, we're not just a stamped kind of tin soldiers from a assembly line. Each one of us has to deal with the way we are, our own particular temperament, uh, karma, or uh, different conditions, attitudes, uh, in various degrees that we individually experience them. <clears throat> Whether you're in the same family or in different families, same race or nationality or same gender or different, uh, conflict is the very nature of this realm. So, and why I'm doing this or reflecting this way, just so once we kind of get that perspective, we can accept that. We're not asking it to be otherwise anymore. We're not expecting the, the, the present government to solve the conflicts or the, or the United Nations or whatever. <laughs> Uh, and, you know, we hope for the Messiah to come and, and straighten out, uh, clean up the mess we've made, or the Maitreya. I always wished, you know, that Maitreya Buddha, that period would start very soon. You know, because we made such a mess of everything. And we need, you know, Maitreya to come in at this time and clean it up. <laughs> and, uh, and wouldn't that be, that would be very nice, wouldn't it? That you know, God or some some really super super powerful, benevolent, compassionate figure come in and and clean up the mess we've made. <clears throat> but in the Buddhist terms, at this time, is uh, we that we have this opportunity to do it in here in in ourselves. And so this is uh, the whole point of uh, vipassana meditation or insight meditation practice because it's this we can do we, you know it's within our potential and our ability to uh, resolve conflict in our own mind in regards to the ones externally sometimes we can resolve or deal with them in skillful ways but rarely does it ever you know it's still one conflict and then another both in families or personal relationships or in where you work, your office, your uh, profession, uh, and then the neighbors, and then <laughs> and uh, the society, and then there's always the French and the Germans, <laughs> and <laughs> the Americans. <laughs> so where where we can, none of us have the power to resolve these conflicts, <clears throat> and then of course in the, these. Uh, peace proposals for Israel or the Palestinians, you know, this is, <laughs> you know, trying to resolve that conflict in some kind of reasonable way seems almost impossible. But what, but recognize within your own mind that it is possible to resolve it internally rather than wait for it all to be resolved externally or wait for the Messiah or Maitreya Buddha. So this is, uh, this, uh, and then the Buddha laid down very clear teachings on how to do this. You know, so it's not just a, a kind of 
hope or some kind of fantasy or some ideal, but he laid down a, a way of teaching that was very practical and how to deal with, say, suffering, the one's own experience of dis-ease, unhappiness, or internal conflicts. Like we all suffer from the conflict between our intellect and our emotions. You know, so many people have, you know, we, we, we know all the right things that were from the intellect, how things should be done, and what's right and what's wrong, and what's allowed and what isn't. You know, that figured out already. How a government should be, how a father should be, how a mother should be, and so forth. But the realities of existence are, even though we know all these shoulds and ideals, and we have certainly, and these are not, there's nothing wrong with this, but it always creates this conflict with what we're actually feeling, our own direct uh, feeling of, of the life that we're living, our own emotional habits, expectations, fears, uh, anger, resentments, and confusion that we all experience emotionally. So recognize the, the intellect is one thing that has, you know, we can be reasonable, we develop reason and logic and, and, how, and ideals, we make judgments, criticisms, com comparing one thing with another. This is the function of our intellectual capacity. But emotionally, it's like this. And, and you can't, you know, whatever emotions you're feeling at this moment, it's the way it is. You can't make yourself feel any particular way and sustain it. Because the emotions are, you know, they're not, uh, they, they're, the, the, the feeling of life, the sensitivity that we have to bear with, which we have very, you know, no control over. We have to bear with the, the bodies that we have in their changing aspects, in their healthiness or sickness, their strength or weakness, uh, their aging. And, and that, of course, is, you know, ideal is to have a perfect body that is healthy and useful forever, <laughs> and then the reality is it's like this. You know, it's a, you know, I have, now getting to the old age level, I have plenty of opportunity to recognize the realities of an aging 76-year-old human body is like this. Now that which is aware, you know, that awareness is, uh, is our ability to, to uh, resolve the conflicts between the rational, uh, critical faculties, the intellectual abilities that we've developed. And in a country like this, these are developed to a high degree. You know, we are educated, we, we have so much information, knowledge, and, and uh, ideas, and we, you know, our intentions are usually good. We want the best for ourselves, families, the country, society. <clears throat> and, and we can conceive of ideals, of ideal countries, uh, governments, husbands, wives, partners, or whatever. But in any moment of our life, such as here and now, the feeling isn't an ideal. You're not, your emotions are never ideal, ideals. They are the way they are. 
And so watching these emotions, beginning to get perspective on our emotional conditioning is, is very important to, to be the observer rather than the one that's always trying to control emotion, trying to either follow it, believe it, commit to our feelings or to resist or reject or deny them. In a society like this one, there's a lot of problems with guilt. You know, you have these, these people have a very strong, have these guilt complexes. And because we, uh, you know, we feel guilty about our basic primal emotions. Because coming from an ideal, you know, of, of what we would conceive of as being the, what we would like to be is one thing. But the realities of our experience of life is, is not an ideal, it's the way it is, and it changes according to conditions. Like one would, like, uh, in, in sense of danger, uh, one would like to be brave, you know, so the ideal is to, when you're facing danger, <clears throat> threats, and so you want to be brave. But then, that's an ideal, but how do you really feel when you're, when you're in danger? <laughs> it's like this, which may not possibly align itself with the word brave. <laughs> and then, then we also recognize that, that our human condition also is one that, that we're born into a, into a sense realm, such as this, you know, being born into planet Earth, living, having to live on this planet in these forms uh, is meaning that we, are, we have to deal with the, the karma of being born as a human being, which means that, you know, when we're born, we have to deal with instinct, with uh, fear is a kind of primal emotion. Fear is, is a, you know, it's not personal even, it's primal. It's, it comes with the, with the package. And, uh, Sexual desire, it comes with, you know, this is part of the package of being a human being, man or woman. Uh, anger and resentment, these are, these are all primal emotions. And yet in uh, a lot of our guilt and sense of, you know, of, of uh, lack of self-respect, of seeing ourselves always in terms of of our emotions as uh, something wrong with them, or so we see them as maybe I shouldn't be angry, I shouldn't feel lust or fear, or confusion. I should be brave and, and loyal and good and kind and compassionate. <clears throat> and then we feel guilty about the way we're actually feeling. And so, you know, this is why I, I encourage you to really, you know, get some perspective on the, on the human condition as a human being, is that greed, hatred, delusion, fear, these are, these are part of the, the human karma of being born as a human being on this planet. Now the animal kingdom has these same emotions. You know, so we're not, we're not that, you know, any, on the, on the, level of uh, this uh, mammalian karma that we share, or just the karma of being born on planet Earth with all creatures that have forms, 
is that these uh, emotions are, these feelings are way of self-preservation, of procreation, survival. All these mechanisms are just part of having to live in a realm uh, where there is a lot of danger. There's a lot to be frightened of when we look around. <laughs> and uh, and uh, it's, uh, so fear isn't something, some neurotic uh, uh, personal problem, but we begin to see it in terms of just the a natural primal emotion that that is uh, part of our human condition, or lust, sexual desire, or or um, anger and resentment, confusion, uncertainty, doubt. These are particularly common to uh, hum- human beings because we think a lot. We're, we're, we're called the thinking beings. And in the, in the Pali word for human being, it's manusia, and, and this word mano, and, and I th- I'm sure the English word man comes from, from this, from Sanskrit or Pali, because it means a thinking being. And, and that describes us, isn't it? We think. Where and we have retentive memory, so we remember. We have because we have this retentive memory, we can learn languages, complicated ways of expression, abstract ideas. We can remember, uh, you know, in our lives what happened fifty years ago, or you know, yesterday, or the day before, or last year. We have the, this ability to remember and and conceive and, and create ideas and ideals in our minds. So this is uh, particularly uh, a gift that we have. It also can easily become a curse in our lives because when it's not understood and not appreciated and not used properly, we tend to, like the guilt complexes that people have, is usually turning uh, this a sense of criticism inwardly. You know, so you see all kinds of things that you you know, that you don't like or don't want in your mind, in your emotions, in your memories, in your thoughts. We can feel guilty about, <clears throat> about sexual desire or, or feel guilty about hating or anger or greed. And so being a monk, you know, I've noticed that in Thailand, for example, when, when we start, when the uh, foreign monks started accumulating, you know, some of them were felt guilty about being hungry. So <laughs> they felt, you know, the idea, they get this idea that Buddhism is against desire and we've got to conquer desire. So they'd feel, you know, they'd see that even hunger, physical, bodily hunger for food is some kind of personal greed and defects. So, I mean, I'm just pointing to how we we can make everything too personal, take it in such an, a kind of deluded way and make it into something more than what it is. So, so, so many people suffer from guilt about all kinds of things, of not being perfect, of not being good enough, not being intelligent enough, not being whatever enough, uh, because according to the ideal, of course, we have the ideals, but the realities are like this. The, the virtues, the vices, the habits, the tendencies, no matter how good, bad, virtuous, or, 
or not. You know, we now have this opportunity to observe them uh, for the way they are. And so this is uh, what mindfulness allows us to do. So, of course, I, you know, I'm always pointing to this word, mindfulness, awareness. Sati Sampachanya, Sati Panya, the Pali words, they're, they're, you know, they, this Sati Sampachanya is about our ability to be aware in a, in, a, in a broad way of just being aware of existence, of contemplating, of reflecting on the nature of, of change, of the feeling, our emotional feeling, pleasure or pain or neutral feeling, of, of the emotional uh, conditions we experience, you know, love or hate, happiness, suffering, uh, our feeling of self-worth or lack of self-worth, we can observe. And so this is the, the this ability, this, this escape hatch that we, that the Buddha pointed to, that we began to emphasize. Like here at Amravati, you know, we emphasize this because even though we all have this, uh, it can be easily dismissed or overlooked by all the problems, concerns, and strong habits, strong emotions that that we feel internally, and all the impingement and pressures and stress and demands from the <coughs> society we live in. Now, putting this this realm in a in a proper place, and again emphasizing this is a sense realm. The human body is a sensitive form. It's not a peaceful form. You know, having a human body is not about being peaceful. It's about, a lot of it's painful. <laughs> and then uh, we have illnesses and, and, you know, from childhood on up. You know, I remember having measles, chicken pox. Had romantic fever quite severely when I was about eight, seven or eight years old. And, you know, just childhood illnesses. So in childhood and from, you know, infancy, we experience pain and, and uh, discomfort because this realm is about sensitivity. <clears throat> and this sensitive realm that we're in, how can we, we're so powerful, you know, considering the, the just the, the temperature, the changing of the seasons, the climate, we're too hot, too cold, just right. Uh, just the, the, um, the, the way things happen to be. Some people have very good health, you know, and hardly ever ha experience sickness, and others are, are born with fairly uh, weak constitutions or ex experience uh, all kinds of pains and, and physical discomfort. That uh, that that's, that one self might not experience. Uh, some people are born, you know, in very fortunate circumstances; other than very unfortunate ones. And so, this is, you know, this is just this realm is 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 not a guarantee of of ha ma making everything according to you know fixing everything and making it right, but l willingness to learn to explore, to investigate. And this we can do, every one of us here have, has this potential to do this. And what we learn from it is that we don't find, you know, like 
the the idea of nibbana, for example, is a word that's used a lot in modern parlance as a kind of uh, blissful happiness, you know, something that is uh, beyond pleasure and pain into a state of, of permanent bliss. And that's what, you know, we all like. That's why we start meditation, you know. Remember, when I began meditating, I wanted to uh, sideline all the pain and suffering, emotional problems I had, to, I hope, find a state of perpetual bliss and tranquility. And, uh, of course, that's not what I found. (laughs) I've had to (laughs) learn that that's, you know, I've had moments like that, but you can't sustain them. They're not sustainable. They're not, you know, they, they have, we have peaks, we have experiences of great bliss and, and happiness and, and uh, so forth that we, you know, part of our experience, but it's not a sustainable state. Because the world we live in, the bodies we have, the planet that we live on is like this. It's not a blissful, it's not heaven, it's not Deva Loka, it's not some high level of consciousness that, that can completely suppress and deny the existence of one's physical experience or emotional habits. So the, what, you know, but the actual word Nibbana or Nirvana actually means uh, discernment. The free thing clearly, being able to discern the, 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 the way that one attaches out of habit, out of ignorance, to conditions, and then, then the suffering is caused through this blind, ignorant attachment uh, that is always creating a sense of dis-ease no matter how convenient your life may be or how healthy you might be still even in the healthiest most convenient most well-run society and happy family there's still a level of uneasiness that is a just a part of of this conditioned realm that we can't just deny or get rid of uh, through wealth or, or uh, happiness in the world, but through understanding suffering. And just even a vague sense of dis-ease or dissatisfaction or, uh, you know, vague sense of anxiety, these might be just levels and maybe not of any great uh, severity, but they... And then, of course, they can change. We can experience great emotional traumas, despair, disappointments, depression. <clears throat> but then in uh, mindfulness practice, we're in a position to observe them. So this is our ability to pay attention to life as we're experiencing it, with, with whatever conditions we have to uh, bear with, our karma, the way things are for us. And therefore, it's no good comparing yourself with somebody else. You know, it's a waste of time to compare yourself with somebody else because um, you'll just feel frustrated and, <laughs> and disappointed uh, be, uh, because uh, that's not the way out of suffering. The way out of suffering is to learn from the way you are. The, and, and this is, so mindfulness allows us to recognize 
our own uh, addictions uh, to views, opinions, our, our identity with our body, with uh, our cultural conditions, uh, position in society, uh, our sense of being male or female, our sexual inclinations, our whatever, all these things, these, these attachments and identities that we bind ourselves to, then of course lead to some form of dis-ease or disappointment or anxiety. Now what mindfulness does allow us to do is to, it's not a suppression, a denial, or rejection of conditioned phenomena. It's not bypassing the conditions. It's not critical or judgmental. It's not saying about whether they're, how good or bad or right or wrong they might be. But mindfulness allows us to uh, recognize ultimate reality, pure consciousness. Now, at this time, in the scientific world and, and the world of uh, psychology, there's a tremendous interest in consciousness. And consciousness is very interesting, even though it's not very interesting, actually. <laughs> because once you re recognize consciousness, it's not, there's nothing in it to be interested in just recognize. What we tend to be interested in is the things we project into consciousness, our, you know, our sense of ourself, our views, our uh, intellectual aspirations, hopes, or, or our sense of, you know, the ego, the cultural attitudes, and, and our ideals, hopes, expectations from life. But consciousness itself, we, we don't need to to uh, look for it because we, this is what we're experiencing right now. Everyone in this room is conscious. So, <laughs> and, but then we don't, don't discern consciousness because the habit, out of ignorance, we tend to always be projecting things into it. So consciousness you might compare to a, like a, like a movie screen. You know, it's just blank. But on that blank screen, you project, you know, you put in a, in a film, and of course then you have all kinds of things, whether it's uh, uh, the trilogy of the rings, <laughs> orcs or fantastic figures, or wars, or comedies, sitcoms, uh, whatever, appear, you know, and we get mesmerized into the into the uh, feelings of love and hate and romance, adventure, excitement that are projected onto the screen. Uh, you wouldn't bother to go to a movie theater just to look at a blank screen. <laughs> and that, I hear in Zen Buddhism, Japanese Zen Buddhism, that's sometimes what they do. They just go, they practice looking at a blank wall. Uh, and there's a point to that. It's not interesting at all, blank walls. But it does, <laughs> it does reflect this, this desire to find something to interest our minds, to be, find excitement, romance, adventure, or horror films, or be scared, or terror, or all these strong emotions are interesting. 
But pure consciousness is not. But it's recognizable. We, we begin to tune into it through mindfulness. We begin to, to have this insight, recognition of pure consciousness that is not, has no personal quality to it. I can't claim it as, as my consciousness, as if my consciousness was any different from yours. Or a dog's, or a cat, or a mosquito. Consciousness is like this. And then the forms, you know, like, <clears throat> like consider the relationship of form to consciousness, like the, a dog has its own dog karma. So it, it has, you know, the, the, when it's born, it has fear, it has uh, sexual desire, it gets angry, jealous, just like we do. You can confuse dogs, cats, and so forth, uh, just like we do. <clears throat> and so consciousness isn't like a, 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 do- a consciousness for a dog is somehow a lower level of consciousness than for a human being. Or an arahant, say a totally perfected human individual, an arahant's consciousness, and a dog, a dog's inferior, and the arahant is superior. Then we're caught in this discrimination, our own maybe uh, attitudes towards the animal kingdom, you know, we're a superior species to the animal kingdom. The kind of arrogance that human beings sometimes manifest through our identity as being somehow above the animal level. Uh, and this, uh, you know, this is what, what I was taught when I was uh, growing up. That we're superior to the animals, and uh, and that we can actually exploit animals, because uh, God created them for us to eat and whatever. <laughs> and so, this is this is my conditioning. So, it, it's uh, one never you know you could kind of relate like we if those who have pets oftentimes relate emotionally to them very well. You get very bonded very attached to a, a dog or a cat or some uh, pet that you you've, uh, have that you find a, a sense of uh, love or affection, interest, gives your life some meaning and quality that you wouldn't have if you didn't have the pet. And then there's the relationship with human beings. Fortunately, pets are easier to live with than human beings. <laughs> <laughs> and you know how difficult it is to live with another human being <laughs> and so this is uh, because human beings think and we don't always think the same you know so this is <laughs> and we have all kinds of you live in a monastic community you've got so many people thinking in different ways and so it, it becomes you know uh, conflicting in various ways of my view against your view. Not to mention, I mean, in marriages or relationships of various kinds, the conflict is is part of the is part of the experience, the reality of of relating to another human being in some, you know, re- in real way of learning how to 
to uh, listen and pay attention and and not just operate from your own view blindly from what I think and if you don't agree with me you're wrong isn't it we all learn as we mature how to listen to somebody else who may not we may not understand at all or or even agree with but it's not a matter of argument about who's right or wrong but learning to pay attention to to somebody else whose feeling maybe differently is like this so this takes this discernment this mindfulness to be able to do this because on a emotional level we you know we can, one can feel very strongly uh, emotionally about my view is the right one you've got it all wrong <laughs> and if you don't come to the right view then uh, you know bye bye it's the end <laughs> so this is you know this is the problems that, that we have with each other no matter how virtuous and good we are we still conflict and or with parents or our children with, with us you know so we get frustrated or angry or confused by the fact that our maybe our children don't agree or don't think or don't see things in the same way we do now of course being head monk at Amravati I think all the monks and nuns should see everything the way I do uh, and sometimes it's very frustrating because they don't. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, it's, uh, then you learn that that's, that's in the point of our life is not to, to find agreements uh, on our own views, but to be able to reflect on them. Now this is very important to be, reflect on on what you do feel it's not like, like this reflectiveness is a discerning ability in which we we get perspective on our own conditioned views or cultural attitudes or emotional habits tendencies our own preferences or biases we begin to see them in in perspective we're not and this is not judgmental we're not saying right or wrong good or bad but we're observing Oh, and this, this emphasis that the Buddha made, this, this simple statement that all conditions are impermanent. So this simplifies everything for us when we really explore this in our experience of life. That whatever you're feeling, thinking, your physical body, your sensory experiences through seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, all this is about change and, and impermanency. And anything that's impermanent means it has a beginning and an end. You know, it's not uh, about something that stays forever. It's not about uh, eternality. But it's uh, uh, observing uh, this changing, whether it's a subtle change or coarse, refined or whatever, we, uh, through awareness, we open ourselves to change the conditioned realm that we are experiencing very strongly at this very moment, sitting here and breathing in this uh, sala. 
And so this mindfulness then allows us to be the observer of change rather than the, the person that's always caught up in the changing conditions you're experiencing. Now the judgmental mind, well, you know, is, is about, is, is we judge, we create judgments and criticisms because that's the nature of the thought process. You know, we have the ability through thinking to create, this is right, this is wrong, good, bad, this is high, this is low, coarse, refined. And these are, these are kind of value judgments we place on conditions that we're experiencing or ideas that we have. Now the thinking process, not to be, uh, not to dismiss it or see anything wrong with it, but learning how to think, how to use thought rather than be just a helpless victim of our thinking habits. Now when I first started meditation, you know, I was about 30 years old, and I'd been through, you know, the universities and acquired a lot of knowledge about all kinds of things, which I've forgotten now. And, <laughs> and then, uh, you know, and I, I just was an obsessed thinker. Just think, think, think all the time. And it would always kind of, and by the time you're 30, you get tired of your own thoughts because they get repetitious. When you're younger, you can, you can have, you know, you're kind of acquiring knowledge. You can be quite interesting. You have a, a good intellect and it's quite entertaining and can be quite fascinating. But at least in my experience, by the age 30, I was really bored with my thoughts. And they kept repeating themselves over and over. So uh, then starting meditation in, uh, I started practicing meditation in 1966 in Bangkok, began to, um, became apparent that, that I, um, you know, I thought, if I could only stop thinking, everything would be all right. I had this insight. If I could only, you know, somehow stop the flow of thoughts. So at first, you know, how the, the, the idea that I've got to stop thinking, then you're trying to stop thinking. <laughs> doesn't work, does it? <laughs> so, uh, you know, so just kind of using willfulness that's based on the self-view or, you know, some kind of idea you had that you, you think too much and you shouldn't, and then and trying to, to stop it, I couldn't get any success with that one. But then as I developed awareness, ordained as a monk and so forth, then it became apparent just through observing, you know, how to let go of thinking, not to suppress it or deny it or reject it, but to f understand it, to see the limitation of it, the impermanence of thoughts, and, and be able to, then through observing thinking, then you, you discern that which is aware of thinking is not thinking. As pure awareness, consciousness with awareness, mindfulness, and then wisdom, discerning, discerning it. Thinking is like this, non-thinking is like this. So recognize the discerning ability that we develop through wisdom is is the, our ability to, to know the difference, to discern, like, 
thinking, attachment to thought, uh, and non-thinking, you can, you can observe it in, in here. And so then you begin to, to recognize how to not, you don't stop thinking as, as like something you never think again, but your relationship to thinking then is much more one of developing thought in a useful, skillful way. How to use thought as, as, because it's a great gift that we have and a tool it's, it's, uh, that, you know, is to be re- respected. But as an end in itself, it only goes from one thought to the next. It just carries you along into the thinking process and then the, the judgments and criticisms and attitudes and cultural biases and personal preferences that, and that, that we are uh, blinded by, obstructed by. Now, in uh, the conflict, say, between the intellect and the emotions and guilt and sense of lack of worth, self-respect and so forth, so so many people in a country like this, no matter how virtuous or good or talented or educated they might be, there seems to be a, a kind of problem around lack of self-worth and this is uh, and and this is you know part of a cultural condition because we don't know who we are and and so we and then we 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 have ideas of what we should be or how how you know what we would like to be and then we see our own sense of confusion as something wrong or we shouldn't have or our own kind of fears, or anger, resentments, or greed, or whatever. We see it in terms of this is wrong. And so we, we tend to see, we, you know, the, the sense of a self, we become very critical of ourselves. So we use the intellect sometimes, to, it goes inward, instead of always criticizing somebody else, many of us turn it inward, and we're always criticizing ourselves. So at least this was my tendency, was I wasn't so critical of others as of myself. Because I could see all kinds of things I didn't like about me. And, <laughs> and I didn't want. Uh, and, you know, I felt, you know, feel guilty or, or the tendency to blame it on somebody. You know, was it my mother's fault, my father? Was it, you know... Maybe something basically, you know, I was born missing a few cells in my brain or something. <laughs> maybe, I'm, maybe I'm a basically disabled person or whatever. You know, it goes into any form of doubt or despair or attitudes. Or No matter how much you try to see yourself in positive terms, the critical faculty is highly, highly developed in a society like this one. In, here in Britain, isn't it, in England, where people are very critical. You know, it's part of our education, the way we see things in terms of right and wrong and what should or shouldn't be. And then a lot of, you know, then we have, a, you know, a Christian kind of cultural conditioning 
Jewish or Christian, you know, like in Europe or America, we, uh, you know, so many of us come from a basically Christian or Jewish attitudes about uh, how, you know, according to to uh, the Old Testament or the New Testament. And so we we have this... Uh, this conditioning which tends to see ourselves in terms of maybe sinners or something wrong or that we have to always do something to try to become something better. Uh, we're not good enough where we need to improve ourselves endlessly. Like in the States, I don't know how strong it is here in England, but Americans are really hung up on self-improvement. So they have books, you know, in bookshops, just uh, how to improve yourself. Because, you know, you're, you're really, none of you are good enough the way you are. You could always be better. And so this is, uh, you know, because we see ourselves from the critical mind. Now, not to dismiss the value of learning how to do things better or improve in, in these, uh, these kind of uh, ways, but also, it's, it tends to create this sense of there's something, I'm not good enough the way I am. And, uh, and I've got to prove myself or get something I don't have. Or I've got to get rid of what I have which is inferior or inadequate. So then we do suffer a lot from guilt because no matter how hard we try to improve ourselves, even though we, we can make ourselves kind of better person, uh, a better personality, maybe a more uh, accepting, uh, generous, kind person. The problem is really rooted in the early conditioning of seeing ourselves always from uh, being uh, born in a state of sin or in not being good enough or in, in you're in a competitive society, there's always a sense of, you know, you having to to compete with somebody else and that you're inferior if you if you don't you know if you're not a winner then you're not as good as the one who is a winner and you can see that in the world of tennis or golf <laughs> football <laughs> how much this this momentum towards achievement and winning and proving ourselves better than somebody else or our team or our country, our culture, our religion, or whatever is somehow superior to somebody else's. And so our sense of self-respect depends on so much of, of achievement, of, of you know, wanting to become somebody that other people envy or admire, be recognized, respected uh, in various ways by others. Or we can, out of despair, just give up and become a tramp or something. Alcoholic or anything. Just way so tired of playing the game, I'm just going to think I'll spend the rest of my life drunk. Which I've certainly felt when I was a lame. <laughs> At least, you know, it doesn't take any effort, just the effort to lift a glass of liquor. <laughs> but... <laughs> Where the other is continuous, kind of, isn't it? You're always having to, you know, through your life, just always compete or feel the necessity to compete or compare with somebody else. Now, with mindfulness, 
we we began to see these ten that's not saying it's wrong, but that we see the suffering we create by blindly being caught into these conditions. Because these are conditions. They're not ultimate reality. They're illusions that we grasp and don't and have don't have a perspective on. We don't see them in terms of impermanent conditions and non self. We always see them in somehow we give them a sense of permanency in our mind. Always, when we fail, don't we? When we fail at something, we can easily go into, I'll always be a failure, I'm just a failure, and sink into despair around the fact that we failed the exam or didn't get the, the job or whatever. Uh, or we can, we can always think of, see it as a challenge. If I don't win this time, I'm going to win the next one. We ha- all have various individual ways of dealing with the conditioned realm uh, and the karma that we have. But um, this uh, mindfulness then gives us this sense of tuning in to what I call the amatadhamma or deathless ultimate reality, pure consciousness. The Buddha's teachings all about discerning and investigating till we actually find in ourselves a stillness, a peacefulness that's always with us, but we don't recognize it. We don't, dis- we don't know it because we're always caught into this vortex of changing conditions and habitual tendencies. And, and so this is why uh, the importance of, like, like meditation, it gives a chance to kind of just stop uh, running around uh, reinforcing the, the sense of yourself with the conditioned realm, with the conditions you have, but a sense of stopping and lo- looking, observing, listening, reflecting. And, and this I found, you know, this ability to suddenly just stop this, this uh, obsessive movement of habit uh, that one acquires by observing it, not by trying to improve myself by getting rid of it. So it's not about getting rid of or judging, it's discerning. It's like this. So this is a time where, you know, this, with the problems of our life, personal problems, environmental problems, uh, cultural, national problems. But, uh, yeah, they seem to be endless. Overpopulation, environmental destruction, pollution, uh, and all the possible dangers and threats that we can conceive of, both on the planet and then the possibility of alien invasions from Mars and, and uh, meteorites crashing into the earth and, and so forth, that we, you know, we live in a, in a realm of danger, actually. Planet Earth isn't so solid and fixed as we would like to assume. You know, just thinking, the very center of this you're sitting on the surface of this planet and the very center is all about heat and fire, molten heat and 
just contemplate that for a while, and you <laughs> and changing, you know, earthquakes and different things, plates changing position. And I was from the West Coast, the United States, from Seattle, and there we always had earthquakes to deal with because it's right on this fault line. Goes from from North America down the coast to New Zealand uh, of these plates that change and. In Seattle, I remember, you know, dealing, we had earthquakes quite regularly, not any that severe. But even the, when they're not very severe, they're, they're terrifying. Because, you know, what do you do? You can't find any place to, to run to because everything's quaking. <laughs> and that's scary, isn't it? At least, you know, if somebody else is, is shooting at you, you can duck. Or... <laughs> shoot back. <laughs> when an earthquake takes over, you know, you're helpless. But this also is a warning to us, isn't it? These, these kind of events like flood, natural catastrophes, tsunamis, uh, earthquakes, and so forth, they, they're actually warning us that this realm, this planet, this universe is not to be seen as something that you can actually depend on for finding peace and happiness that this is an opportunity we have to learn, to de develop this wisdom. And this is our, our great gift of being human. And in Buddhist terms, this is a very fortunate birth, to have a human birth. And, this, and contemplate this, because we have this, this uh, very, this, this ability within the the, a world of conflicts and fear and changing conditions we have hardly any control over whatsoever. We have this ability to recognize a stillness, an inner peace, stillness, that is our true nature, that is with us all the time, but we, when we don't observe it, we don't see it, don't discern it, then we're, we're caught into what they call Sangsara, this changing vortex, this whirling vortex of change, and and uh, the the realm of condition conditionality that we have, we can't control. We can't make it what we want. We can't demand that it be a certain way for us, you know, because it's it's just the way it is. Change conditions, the bodies we have, <clears throat> the the emotional habits that we we've acquired, our own uh, sense of self, and uh, fears, desires of different kinds—they are the way they are. And then uh, mindfulness gives us perspective. Now, this really is something to to recognize, something worth doing, because with this kind of practice, you can resolve conflicts in your mind. You can, you can actually go to pure awareness. And as you recognize it, it's self-sustaining. It doesn't, you don't need to make it happen or, or control it. You just, the attitude is more of letting go of control, of attachments. And through that, then you, you discern what we call the unborn, uncreated, the deathless, the ultimate reality, 
this we we can actually recognize through mindfulness. And from there, then the conflicts we have personally, our emotional habits, our sense of our self-worth and so forth, these then are in a perspective that we're no longer just helplessly deluded, overwhelmed, and and um, caught into the, the power of conditioned phenomena. Now this is a kind of a miracle in a way. I mean, you know, from from my perspective as a personality, you know, I think this is a f- marvelous, fantastic ability that through the, the power of, you know, through the, the, the powerful conditions that one has to endure for a lifetime, your own human form, for example, and all the pressures of the universe, the, the alignment of the stars in the sky, everything's affecting us, isn't it, in some way? How can you control the power of the moon or the sun or the, you know, when we try uh, kind of megalomaniacs uh, trying to become God, but nobody ever succeeds. So we have to, <laughs> and it's all a kind of, uh, a kind of terrible disappointment because we have to recognize the limitation of our humanity. We're not, we can't become God and know everything and be in control of the whole universe. But we can observe this within this uh, form, in this human form, and with the, the karma that you have individually. You know, whatever it might be. You know, physically, you're healthy or sickly, you know, you're, you, whatever your emotional habits might be, or your neuroses or fears or whatever, uh, your opinions and views and attitudes, these are all reflected in like on this movie screen. They're like the, the film being played. But you can also, when the, when the movie stops, there's the screen. And, it's be, uh, and so mindfulness gives us this sense of recognizing this, this pure consciousness, which we don't create. It's not cultural. It's not personal. It's not even Buddhist, <laughs> but it is reality. And, and therefore, uh, we, it helps to put into perspective our own, uh, our ego's sense of self, uh, our, our conditioning that we've acquired after we're born. Uh, the, the strong sense of, of me and mine, or, or cultural prejudices or biases fears and desires, of our arrogance, our conceit, our sense of anxiety and, and worry about the future, or regret or angst that we create around past experience, remembering uh, things of the past, or the resentments that we feel about being treated unfairly or abused and that we remember in our past. We, we have then have a perspective on these conditions in which we're not denying or indulging in, but we observe them. And as you cultivate this, then you really begin to trust this. This is something you can totally trust and, and uh, cultivate in your life in the way that you have to live it. You know, in the conditions that we find ourselves in. So now, yeah, I invite you to have a cup of tea and then in 
20 minutes or so. Uh, if you're interested, then you can, we can have further, dis have a discussion. <laughs>